Please turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3, we will be looking uh, at verse 13 all the way through chapter 4 and verse 5. Amos 3, 13 through 4, 5. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for scripture. As we have been going through the book of Amos, um, we've been reminded that your character and your attributes are beyond what we sometimes think. We have been introduced to this in this book to attributes that sometimes make us more uncomfortable. We are quick to talk about your love, but we oftentimes are uncomfortable talking about your holiness, your justice, your judgment. And we have been in a section of Amos that is particularly hard in these areas. We have learned about your seriousness against sin and your wrath And so I pray that you might help us, that our hearts would be softened today as we hear yet again some of the um, harsh realities of judgment, and yet at the same time, may we be encouraged that the gospel rescues us from divine wrath, that anyone and everyone who repents and believes on Christ will be saved and will be hidden from your wrath, that we can take refuge in Christ. We thank you for this merciful provision that we as mankind is completely undeserving of. And so we pray that you might help us as we look at this passage today to conform ourselves to Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In August of 2017, many of you are uh, aware of some undercover videos that were released Uh, of Planned Parenthood employees caught red-handed profiting from certain sales, and that's the extent that I'll say for the kids here today. You probably remember that these videos came out, and uh, one in particular has always stuck with me, and that is uh, the video of uh, Dr. Mary uh, Gatter who was working at a leadership level at uh, Planned Parenthood, and as they were haggling over prices, she jokingly said that she wanted a Lamborghini out of these sales. And it is hard, and again, I'm being a little bit cryptic here for the sake of the younger ears, it is hard not to get sick over the mere thought of what this woman was suggesting in her jest. Not only is there this kind of treachery that's being committed that is in itself wrong enough, but to be profiting from it and then to even joke about the profit that you make from it adds so much more. It may be that this is the foremost example of American oppression and exploitation of our time. And God takes this seriously. So seriously does God take the sin of oppression and exploitation that he was willing to carry his people Israel off into captivity because of their oppression and exploitation. As we have seen in the book of Amos, Uh, particularly in Amos chapter 3, as we've been in the last few weeks. In the book of Amos, the oppression of the poor had reached critical mass. And we are going to see this in today's text. And then what I would like to do is kind of conclude, and, and, and part of the reason for this is the book of Amos, as we have observed several times, is somewhat challenging to us, I think, because of the separation of time and of culture and all of those kinds of things. And sometimes we look at this book and say, how is it even going to apply to us? And so what I would like to do 
is after we look at the text here, as we conclude later today, uh, I would like to look at several examples of modern day oppression and exploitation. How are we following in these same types of sins that Israel was doing? Let's go ahead and read the text in front of us. Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 13, we read this. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn in his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. We're going to look at this passage today in three sections. We're going to look at the judgment that's given in verses 13 through 15. We're going to look at uh, the sin, and that is in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. And then there is going to be an invitation in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. The first verse of our text today is simply uh, an invitation to... Um, listen to the impending judgment on Israel. Notice in Amos 3 and verse 13, we see, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. We know, specifically, according to this verse, that this judgment comes from where? Where's the source of the judgment? Okay, it's coming from God. God is the one who claims responsibility for the judgment, and specifically, he claims responsibility for punishing Israel, as verse 14 makes clear. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 14, we read, on that day, or that on, the, uh, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. If you guys could keep up with me back there, I think the clicker is not working today. So we have here, uh, I, in verse 14, I will punish, okay? That is God's commitment. Knowing the fact that God is a God who is slow to what? Anger makes this all the more vivid. Okay, God is slow to anger and he's angry, which means that it has taken some time for Israel's sin to build up to this critical mass level. And the Lord promises specifically two things. First, he promises that the altars of Bethel will be punished. And second, he promises that the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Okay? The altars of Bethel are punished, number one. Number two, the horns of the altar are cut off and fall to the ground. Now, the question that we have to ask is, why Bethel? Why does Bethel continue uh, to be front row in these, uh, these indictments in Amos? Well, Bethel, uh, so that you know where it's located, is uh, located roughly 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And Bethel is an important city because it is uh, known as the foremost idolatrous spot in Israel. Okay? So essentially, Bethel equals idolatry, at least in this particular day. Of course, there was a day before Jeroboam, that that was not the case. But once Jeroboam came on the scene, from that day forward, Bethel can be associated with idolatry. 
You may recall that Bethel's idolatrous heritage began in Jeroboam's day when Jeroboam wanted to prevent his people from crossing the border and worshiping in Jerusalem. And so in order to prevent that, uh, what, what Jeroboam did was he set up an altar in Bethel and prescribed false idolatrous worship to keep his people, to keep political control over his people, okay? Now, Jeroboam, as we know in the text, set up one altar, okay? But what does Amos talk about? Judgment against the altars, plural, in Bethel. One commentator uh, remarks on the change from the singular in Jeroboam's day to the plural in Amos's day, and he says simply this, false worship and heresy uh, ever hold their course developing themselves. They never stand still where they began, but spread like a cancer. It is a test of heresy, like leprosy, that spreads abroad, preying on what first seemed sound. What does this mean? What is this commentator drawing out from this particular observation? Well, it is simply this, that heresy never stands still. Heresy is moving in a direction, and it will spread and grow over and over and over and over again. Now, why is that the case? Why is this the case that the normal course of events is that when a small heresy is introduced, it spreads into a bigger heresy? Or we might say when it starts off with one altar, it ends with many altars. What is the cause of this kind of thing? And and I would suggest that one of the big reasons that this happens is because as human beings, we crave consistency. What's the connection here? Well, let me expound on this for just a moment. Okay? Let's, Let's take, for instance, the church that um, embraces a theological liberalism. By that, I mean a kind of teaching that says, uh, is this really God's word? Is this really what God said? Are we sure that that was just Paul? That was just Moses? Uh, There's some wisdom in the Bible, but the Bible, of course, can make errors. Let's say that that's kind of the trajectory that you're on. This church or this denomination on this particular trajectory sends all of its kids to some seminary that promotes something called higher criticism, okay? Higher criticism, this academic discipline where you question and doubt whether or not this author really wrote this book. And, and well, he used a word in the second half of the book that he never used in the first half of the book, so that must mean it's a different author in the second half and the first half, uh, which has kind of always been interesting to me as if people didn't have access to more words <laughs> than uh, in the first half of the book or whatever. But, but these are the kinds of arguments that are being made, okay? And so the leaders, the, these kids will go to seminary and then they'll come back and then they're the next generation of, of leaders in the church. And then all of a sudden they're, they're saying, did Paul actually say this? We think that Genesis is actually four different documents put together and someone else compiled it all together. The Bible's a good guide. Uh, there was a church I saw, I think this week or last week that said the Bible is like a GPS. It's a good guide, but occasionally wrong, okay? So so you're living in that kind of a context, okay? Think about the person who believes that, okay? They preach a sermon and how the Bible is untrustworthy, but then they sing a mighty fortress is our God. At some point, some point they're going to wake up and say one of these things is not like the other it, it, there's a, i need to have consistency and right now i'm not very consistent okay uh, or they preach a sermon on how god would never demand justice he he's he's like the elderly grandfather and he sweeps all your sin under the rug he's, he doesn't worry about justice and then they sing the song before the throne of god above and they sing the line for god the just is satisfied and they say one of these things is not like the other now secular psychologists would call this dissonance we call this a contradiction 
okay? And at some point, a reasonable person says, I need to bring harmony into my beliefs. I, I, I'm going here and I'm doing two separate things. I'm, I'm saying two separate things that are contradicting one another. And so the only way that you can bring harmony to that kind of a thing is by ejecting one of those two beliefs. Right? Because you want, we all want consistency, okay? So, so you have to either get rid of your statement, the Bible isn't trustworthy, or you have to get rid of truth. And so this is why heresy, and actually, sound doctrine, sound doctrine doesn't move, okay? But we move either closer to heresy or closer to sound doctrine. We, we are always moving, we are uh, uh, always reforming, right? We, we, we are recognizing errors in our own thinking we, we, as we read the scripture and as we pray and as we go to church, as we fellowship with believers, suddenly we say, ah, oh, this is not, I was believing something that was against the Bible. And so we're moving in a good direction. Hopefully we're moving in that positive direction. Heresy also is moving because it's saying, oh, th- this, um, a mighty fortress is our God. That's inconsistent. Let me get rid of that. Okay, so so altar to altars, okay? A direction that you're going here, okay? Uh, This is how heresy spreads. You say to yourself, boy, I'm preaching about how God's word is not true, but then I'm singing this hymn over here. Let's get rid of this hymn. And oh, while we're at it, let's get rid of the Lord's Supper. And oh, while, while we're at it, let's get rid of this. And all of a sudden, over years, it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes. This is why... Those who are leaving the church, uh, some may call themselves deconstructionists or whatever it is that they want to call themselves, are going to continue to drift further and further away. People rarely stay still. They are usually moving. Okay? Now, this is a warning for us. Okay? This is a not point the finger at them sermon. Okay? This is a look into your own heart message. Okay? If you're moving in a direction, it's going to be a good direction or a bad direction. Okay? Now, let's go back to the ABCs of Christianity. Okay? What is my compass to go in the good direction? It's it's Scripture. Okay? It's the Word of God. That's why we soak in this. Right? That's why we read it and meditate on it and so on and so forth. This is how it went from the altar at Bethel to the altars at Bethel. And by the way, this prophecy does come true. We, we know this from 1 Kings 13 and 3, okay? And one other verse, but in 1 Kings 13, uh, he gave them a sign. There was a prophet, unnamed prophet, to, that said to Jeroboam, this is the sign the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar at Bethel shall be torn down and the ashes shall be poured out. Okay, then we have a reference to that here in Amos. And then after the exile, 2 Kings 23, 15, moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam. Okay, what does it say? He pulls it down, reducing it to dust. Okay, so you have a fulfillment of this prophecy. And so once again, and we saw this at the 9 a.m. service on the promises of God, the word of the Lord is always what? True. It's always right. Note that Amos also says, in addition to the altar, judgment coming against the altar itself, Amos says that the horns of the altar will be cut off. Do you, you understand the symbolism in what's going on in the horns of the altar? Do you, do you remember what people used to do in the Old Testament when they realized that they were in trouble, say, with the king or someone? What would they do? They would run and they would grab a hold of the horns of the altar. What did they do that for? To avoid punishment. Now, we actually don't have any... Old Testament passage that prescribes this behavior. So uh, it's not, at least it's not in scripture endorsed by God, but it is at least what they were doing 
in practice. Okay? They, they would grab onto this, and symbolically, they were looking for asylum, is what they were doing. Okay? So to have these horns of the altar cut off, what does that mean? What is God communicating to Israel? He's communicating, you have nowhere to hide. <laughs> you can't flee anywhere because I'm coming for you. There were no safe spaces. And of course, we see this same concept in Revelation 6, verses 16 through 17, where we read the people are saying, fall on us to the mountains and rocks, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's Christ. They're asking for refuge from God the Father and God the Son. They say, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? There's nowhere to hide. Rocks fall on us, please. Even their homes will be destroyed. In Amos 3 and verse 15. He says, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Now the rich, remember, this is one of the themes that we've been looking at in Amos, and that is the rich have gained their wealth through the exploitation of the poor. Okay? Now we know from Scripture that wealth by itself, apart from these kinds of wrong motivations and wrong means of attaining it, wealth by itself is not a sin. In fact, the Bible gives us some instructions on how to build wealth. Things like avoiding debt and saving and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, Proverbs 13.11 is one of these. Proverbs 13.11 says that wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Okay? He's promoting the positive good of gathering little by little, of working and saving and producing and doing those good things that are uh, a blessing to our neighbors and our community and so on and so forth. In fact, not only do we have this in Proverbs 13.11, But we also have the fact that a good man, someone who is a righteous man in Scripture, purposefully builds wealth in order to bless his children and his grandchildren. Did you know this? So Proverbs 13, 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Okay? One of the reasons that you don't spend all of your money on your hobbies, in part, is so that you can bless your grandchildren, so so that you can be a blessing to your children. You want to be able to give something to your children. You want to be able to provide for your children in a meaningful kind of a way. And so all of this is simply to to make the, the simple observation that wealth by itself is not a bad thing, Amos is not condemning wealth by itself. Okay? What he is condemning is the way that they earn their money. The way that you earn your money is important. And it would be better, if you had your choice, it would be better for you to not have hardly any money at all than to earn great wealth through injustice. Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Okay? It would be better for you, for you to have no money at all with righteousness than for you to have great hordes of wealth, but to have earned it through injustice. Okay? But Israel had not followed these things. They had acquired their winter and summer houses by injustice. And God says, in judgment, he will destroy these houses. Now, there's something here that is going to, I think, perhaps, maybe, surprise us. And that is what the text tells us is the source of this injustice. What is the source of the oppression? What is driving the exploitation of the poor to build these ornate houses? 
And the wellspring of this injustice comes from a place that most of us would be unlikely to guess. And that is given to us in the next section, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the sin. Let's read this. (laughs) Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn in his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. All right. You ready for the phrase that I've used a couple times? Soft preaching makes hard hearts, and hard preaching makes soft hearts, okay? This is going to be a challenge, I think, for our culture in general, and maybe even for some of us. What is the source of this injustice? It is the women of Israel that he calls cows of Bashan, okay? He says, You women of Israel, you cows of Bashan. Now, what is he doing when he calls these women cows of Bashan? This is a cultural reference that we are unfamiliar with, and so I want to help us to understand this a little bit so that we can understand what he's exactly saying about them. If you referred to a woman today... As a cow, okay, (laughs) this would be a highly offensive and degrading remark, okay? And I do not suggest that you do that, okay? The reason that it's offensive today is because it's degrading, right? That's why it's offensive. That's why it's an insult if you were to say that today, because of how degrading it is, okay? And we ought not to be... Great, okay. This insult is offensive in the book of Amos because it's not degrading. How can calling someone a cow not be degrading? <laughs> Let me explain. It's because he calls them cows of Bashan. Bashan was known for its lush pastures. It is referred to the Bible a couple of times in this context. Micah, for example, refers to Bashan this way. He says, let them graze in Bashan Gilead. And Ezekiel refers to the livestock in Bashan as fat beasts. And in Psalm 22, we read of strong bulls of Bashan. Okay? The livestock that lived in Bashan had it made. Okay? The, li- the livestock in Bashan did not have to go in search of food. They could just... It was all available to them wherever they turned. They didn't have to work hard. They could just relax and they could kind of lounge back and just enjoy the prosperity that they experienced here in Bashan. Okay? And so when the Lord refers to these women as cows of Bashan, he is not uh, insulting them by degrading them as comparing them to a cow in some way that we would think today. He, He is indicting them by calling them comfortable, pampered, luxurious, always relaxing, and never working. <laughs> Do you see the cult? You see what's, why he calls them this now? Now that has meaning because how did they get to that luxurious state? Through oppression, okay? So he's looking out at the women of Israel who have gained their wealth in their summer house and their winter house and all of this through exploitation of the poor and he's calling them cows of Bashan. He's saying, you luxurious, uh, uh, well-fed, lazy women who have earned your wealth through this way, woe to you. These luxurious women are said to be on the mountain of Samaria, and they are condemned for oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. And because of these women, and in a minute we'll see passive men as well, 
Judgment is coming on the nation as a whole. You might recall from Proverbs 14 and verse 1, this wisdom. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Let me speak for just a moment to the wives here and communicate to you that you have more power in your home than you might realize, okay? Your attitude, your demeanor, your nagging, or whatever, all of that has the power, according to Proverbs 14.1, to tear down your home. Okay? You, you, you can contribute to tearing it out brick by brick. And instead of being a place of joy and rest and refuge and laughing, you can cause your home to be a place of despair and angst and turmoil and weeping. Now, the the good news is that this power can be used not just for ill, but for good. Okay? Your home ought to be a refuge. Okay? Your children go out into the world, and they see the angst and the sin and the despair and the depression and the anxiety and all of that kind of stuff, and they should think to themselves, at least I can go home to mom and dad and be in a place where there's comfort and joy and peace and not backbiting and not murmuring and not any of that kind of stuff. Your home should be a sanctuary of sorts. Now, the thing about Israel is that these wives have multiplied Proverbs 14.1 to a national level. So they're not just tearing down their homes, they're tearing down their nation as a whole. Now, to add insult to injury, there's one more observation to make about this verse, and that is this. In the the Hebrew, the word for husband is a uh, rare word to translate as husband. It is more frequently translated as lord or master, okay? So here's what he's doing. God is accusing them of a reversal of marriage roles, and he calls the husband the lord or the master, which implies headship, and then he tells them how the women are actually in a position of headship, wanting to oppress others, okay? So it literally says this. It literally says this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your masters, bring that we may drink. Here's what you have. Here's here's the picture that this verse is painting for us. You have Israel full of households where husbands have abdicated their roles and the wives have filled that void and are taking charge. And the wives are leading the charge towards the oppression of the poor and the husbands passively stand by oppressing more people in order to obey the orders of their wives. The wives are living in the lap of luxury while they are barking orders to their husbands and their husbands, in order to foot the bill for their wives' expensive tastes, are oppressing more people just to keep their wives happy. As it turns out, the phrase happy wife Happy life is not always true. And that's exactly what's going on in Israel right now. And because of their sin, God promises that he is going to take them away with fish hooks. Okay? Look at Amos 2, or Amos 4, 2 to 3. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord. I, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know any way to clean this up, okay? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to make this into a pretty package. For any of us, okay? This is a gruesome picture. This, this whole scene that is unfolding, that the Lord is condemning the people of Israel with, it, what are we supposed to do with this? I'll just read it and take it as it is. These high society women are going to be dragged away from Samaria and into captivity, or worse, they will be killed. 
The image is grotesque. Imagine jumbo-sized fish hooks stuck into these women and marching them in a single file line to their fate. That is what he's describing here. He tells them that they will go through the breaches straight ahead and cast into Harmon, which, by the way, we don't really know where that is. But this is, this is their fate. And so in response, the Lord extends an invitation. Now, what would you expect? What, would, what, what invitation would you expect to hear from the Lord right now? Repent, turn from your ways and live. What is, what is, what is, what is his invitation? All right, let's look at it in four through five. Come to Bethel and transgress. <laughs> what? to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leaven. Proclaim freewill offerings and publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Okay? This is obviously satire, okay? The Bible is really good at giving to us satire and sarcasm, okay? And I love to find those places in Scripture, okay? Here's a great example of this, okay? Instead of saying repent, he's saying, keep on sinning. Keep it up. While you're at it, go here and transgress more here. Oh, and sin more here. And keep doing this and keep doing this. Keep doing this. The, the, the satire is in itself an indictment. The satire is in itself condemnation. The, the, the satire is, you are going to be judged for this Israel. He tells them to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, to offer free will offerings. And then he says, for so you love to do. In other words, since you already love to sin so much, just keep doing it more and more and more. Go for it. Let it loose. Their offerings had become a sham. They had an external appearance of religiosity with their altars and their offerings and their system, but they were dead on the inside. Let us not be that. Yes, go to church. Yes, read your Bible. Yes, fellowship with believers. Yes, 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 yes. But don't do that only on the outside. Let it be something on the inside. Israel's love for oppression and Israel's love for false worship had reached critical mass. So intense was their sin that as we have looked at previously, we know from the time that Amos gives his prophecy until the time that Israel is carried into captivity by the Assyrians is 40 years. They only had 40 years left until everything that was talked about in Amos would be fulfilled. So where do we go from here? Well, because of the great gap between the culture of Israel at the time and our culture, sometimes it may seem daunting to find any kind of points of application. They were doing things that are totally different from we're doing. But I want want you to remember that there are two primary sins in Amos and two primary sins in this particular passage that will help us to get to where do we go from here, okay? Now, sin number one is false worship, okay? That's on every page in Amos, okay? Sin number two is oppression or exploitation, okay? Now, we notice this, or we we noted this in the introductory message that we gave in Amos, and that is that there was a connection between sins A and B, and that is that sin A was the cause of sin B. Sin B was the result of sin A. The false worship causes the oppression, okay? Which means that there is always, always, always a connection between your worship and your behavior. Always, 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 always. Take that to the bank, okay? If you have an empty shell of worship on the inside, 
then your behavior is going to be skewed. And the primary way to bring my behavior into conformity, to be a righteous person, is to bring my worship into conformity. Okay? We might say it this way. Your belief determines your behavior. So, let's talk about how we can draw some lines to our modern culture. Oppression. How are we oppressive? This needs to be talked about. Partly because our culture has thrown this word around so frequently and so often that oppression doesn't mean anything anymore. Okay? If somebody on the airplane says something next to me that I don't agree with, I'm oppressed. It's gotten to that level in some places. Has it not? I mean, anything that I don't like is, is oppression. So let's bring this back and say, what are some legitimate categories of oppression? All right, let's, let's start with a, a small list here. Sex trafficking. I think everybody can agree on that one. But this is oppression. Sex trafficking is one of the greatest injustices of our land, and I don't know hardly a person who's doing a thing about it. We don't even talk about this, okay? By the way, if anyone does know of a good organization that's doing something about this, please tell me. There are, we need good organizations that are, that are helping, I think probably to do two main things in this area. One is to help, um, it's primarily women, but there are men being sex trafficked too, but to help pull them out of this, to rescue them from this, and then also to help them deal with the aftermath of all of this, okay? So if anyone knows of that, please let me know. Um, now, there is, there is one that seems far out, and it seems, what's the application from that? Yeah, it's bad, but what am I supposed to do about this, okay? I, I'm going I'm to give you one practical way to do this, Okay? And that is this. If you are looking at porn, stop it. There, there is an absolutely unmistakable and clear connection between the pornography industry and the sex trafficking industry. Every single time you click on something... You are voting, I want to see more things like this. And the people who are producing it are saying we need to create more revenue. And they are producing this on the backs of sex trafficking victims. This is a clear connection. But I, I could give you a list of 5,000 reasons why no Christian ought to ever lay their eyes on pornography. But for the purposes of this message, there's one reason that stands out, and that is it is oppressive. You can sit in the comfort of your own home, in the privacy of your own with nobody else, and you could be scrolling through, and you are oppressing people. Because you're voting, give me more of this, give me more of this, give me more of this. Okay, I'll give you more of this. We'll get more. We'll create If you need help with this area, by the way, please, men, come and see me. Women, if you need help in this area, please see a godly woman in the church um, because this needs to stop if you are engaging in this. That's one way in which our nation is engaging in oppression. A second example is, I think, probably the most obvious one, and it is the one that I started with the opening illustration, and that is 
63 plus million babies snuffed of their lives. That's oppression. Since Roe versus Wade, 63 plus million. I would venture to say that abortion is the greatest evil of our day. Nothing has been more institutionalized. Nothing has been more accepted in our culture, broadly speaking, than this. It is a well-oiled machine that continues to take the life of child after child after child after child after child. We need to support. We need to either be on the front lines or support the people who are on the front lines of this, one of those two things. I would give to you another example um, of modern oppression, uh, one that we may not first think of. Uh, If any of you have ever worked with um, people who are in need of financial help, uh, you may have stumbled across this particular one, and that is, I would say that the modern welfare system, the way that it is run, is contributing to this problem. Um, I'm not, now, now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that helping the poor is the problem. I'm saying the way that we're helping the poor is a problem, okay? And I run into this because a lot of people will come and ask our church for financial help, and I cannot tell you, that the, the, the way that this system is run is it incentivizes fatherless homes is, is what it, it 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 creates it more fine it makes more financial sense for a woman in poverty to be married to the state than to be married to a husband okay incentivizes this i cannot tell you how many men i have talked to if there's a legitimate reason that you can't work, I understand that, and we want to help in the church, and we have given money as a church, and we will continue to do that, and we need to be give benevolence gifts to our community and help the poor, okay? I cannot tell you, though, how many men I have talked to, grown adult men, who have no health issues at all and are completely, entirely capable of providing for their homes and their families and their wives and their children, who say to me, I'm sorry, but I can't get a job because I will lose my benefits, okay? It incentivizes laziness, okay? I I know know people, one individual that a number of years ago who his, his wife was on some kind of benefits, and he was totally able to work, completely healthy, and he chose to stay home and play video games all day long. All day long. And he said, I, John, I was meeting with him, I was trying to help him, I'll pray for you, I'll help you get a job, I'll help you do all this kind of stuff. And he didn't want the help, because he would lose. Okay, that's an example. You're, we're talking about how are we finding ways in which our current culture is engaging in this same sin. Well, that's one way. Okay, that's, an, that's another way that this happens. And of course, uh, persecution is one. We see this, uh, when we're talking about persecution against Christians, we see this primarily in other countries, but it is increasing in America, by the way. Um, but we see in other countries, Christians lined up and shot and killed, okay? That's oppression. There are a million other ways that we can do this. In the corporate world, we can step on top of others and unjustly climb the ladder over them by cheating or by lying or whatever, okay? A husband and a father can oppress his family, by being a cruel taskmaster in the home. Instead of leading with love and humility, he leads with a heavy and a harsh hand. Lawmakers who make unjust or overly stifling laws are uh, engaged in oppression. Businessmen who engage in dishonest or unethical business practices could also be categorized here. In addition, thieves, murderers, rapists, so on and so forth. There is no shortage of ways in which we can commit this particular sin, okay? I'm trying to give you a, a, a sampling list here of ways in which how are we going to take the two primary sins in Israel, false worship and oppression, and how are we going to figure out how that applies today? And, 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 and these are some of, and there are more ways in which we can engage in this today. And so I want to apply the passage in front of us in two ways to us. And I've gone a couple minutes over, but I'm I'm wrapping up here. Number one, 
Instead of oppressing others, deny yourself and serve others. Now, if you are saying application number one is too general, too generic, well, I just gave you a whole list, okay? So whatever in that whole list is the way that you may be engaging in this, then repent of that, okay? Um, Instead of stepping on people, we are supposed to help people up who've fallen down, to serve them, to love them, to care for them, not to use them so that I can stand a little bit taller on top of them. Number two, instead of engaging in idolatry, worship the Lord on his terms, not yours. Okay? What should a worship service look like? God tells us what that looks like. How do I worship throughout the week? God tells us what that looks like. It's not up to you, it's up to him. Last week, I concluded, we're kind, of, we're kind of going through a long stretch in Amos of condemnation after condemnation after condemnation. And it looks like there is no hope at this point. But keep in mind that this is going somewhere. This is going somewhere. In fact, I read, we, we can jump ahead a little bit here. Last week, I read um, uh, verse 11 of Amos 9. But... Um, we can jump ahead to verse 13, Amos nine thirteen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Aren't you thankful that chapter 3 of Amos is not the last chapter of Amos? Yes, the judgment of the Lord is harsh, but his mercy is more. His grace and his favor. And if we have sinned, as we all have, what do we do? Run to Christ. He will forgive. He is merciful. The gospel is sufficient. Thank you, God, so much for your grace. Thank you, even though that this is a rather hard, hard text in Scripture, that we know that you are a forgiving and a merciful God and a God who is abundant, long-suffering, slow to anger. Help us to cling all the more tightly to the gospel because of the hope that's available there. I pray that if there be any here that does not know Christ as Savior, that they would take refuge in him, knowing that he will forgive and that that forgiveness comes at a cost, but the cost is to you, not to us. It is free for us. The gift of salvation is something that we don't have to work or earn or try harder or do better because you have paid for it in full. And so we pray that you might help us to cling, to grasp hold of that gift through faith alone in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.